uh, ballroom uh, technology thing that I was speaking at on the Tuesday, and then on the Wednesday in between, I was going to fly to Chicago, speak on Thursday in Chicago, fly back to Charlotte that night. <clears throat> but I remember distinctly uh, that night on the 10th, went to dinner. Uh, I had a colleague that had just joined the company. Uh, he had, we'd hired him from University of South Carolina, where he was an English professor and also uh, was a self-taught technologist that was amazing. Today, he's doing stuff with uh, all around the world. And uh, we had just hired him, and he was traveling with me. He flew in uh, with me. And we were meeting another guy from Compact Computers. Uh, back in the day, you guys remember. Uh, Compact Computers. So we were kind of joining up with them, this, this conference. And uh, he had flown in from Salt Lake. And so we go to dinner that night, Italian restaurant in Cincinnati. I'm the born-again believer. Got saved in 95. I'd only been saved for a few years. Uh, as 2001. A devout Mormon. And an atheist, because my, my new colleague for the University of South Carolina professor was an atheist, did not believe in. So, born-again guy, Mormon, atheist, Italian dinner. You can't go wrong with Italian dinner, so, you know. Uh, we're Italian meal, and uh, my colleague who had been hired from USC, uh, his dad was a hospital executive, had just gotten back from about a couple of years in Yemen, where he had uh, ran hospitals in the Arabian Peninsula, and we were talking about Israel, and I... Uh, we got on the topic, and his dad didn't want to go to Israel because at that time you had the, the uh, infantadas that were taking place of car bombings, bus bombings. That was before Israel built the wall that separates Jerusalem from the West Bank. If you go to Israel with us in uh, January, you'll see that wall. We have to come through the guard gates now. And, uh, but that didn't exist at the time. And uh, so long story short, we're talking about these geopolitical things. And, and I said, hey, guys, I said, I've... Here's the deal. And I, had it, I, I outlined my reasons. I said, but for the following reasons, I believe we're doing a major terrorist attack in this country. The following morning, at our first break, I get a note passed to me that hey, something's gone on with the first tower. And then uh, by the mid-morning, we had canceled everything. I kept my rental car. My atheist coworker drove eight hours back to Charlotte with me and got a lot of the gospel uh, <laughs> that day, a lot of discussions. But... My, th my thing is that uh, I remember the 10th as well as I remember the 11th because we were having a discussion. I was trying to present the gospel and, and that night. And here we are uh, as we continue to pray for revival. You can put the revival uh, slide up for me. Uh, we've been, I've been praying. That had a huge impact on God telling me that I was going to not stay in the business world and he was going to call me into ministry because... It just had this profound effect, like God says, you're going to need to talk to people about Jesus, not about technology, even though I still like technology. Uh, but it's a, that was a, it was not the only thing, but it was a big thing, and you know, just that our nation, I knew our nation at that time was running from God. I believe we're running even further from God today than we were in 2001, as a country, and even as the church, so... Uh, so we've been praying for revival for quite some time. Ever since the pandemic, we started getting on our knees, which was something that they did way back in the day. They had little knee pads in churches, and you know they still have maybe a few. But we started getting on our knees just to pray for God's intervention and, and bring revival. And so we'll be doing that today. I also want to pray for um, the nation of uh, Morocco, uh, which had a 7.1 earthquake. Uh, so devastating there. 
Uh, I haven't talked to John from Ananias House, but they do so much work in the Middle East and, and uh, North Africa. I'm sure they will be doing some work there as they've been doing in Turkey and Syria ever since that earthquake uh, that devastated that area. But, um, you know, we could have one here someday that would surprise you all. I mean, the one in Charleston, South Carolina in the 1700s uh, is on our side uh, of the Mississippi, and so anything can happen. Uh, it's but by the grace of God. Amen? So we want to pray uh, for Morocco as well. And as we pray for one nation today, we are scheduled to pray for Austria uh, and the work of God in that country too. So a lot less room in this service than the 830 service, but if you want to, if you're able to, you don't have to, but if you want to get on your knees for about 45 seconds of silence, go for it. If not, just pray seated there, and we will get into Acts chapter 5 in just a moment. Let's pray. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, Lord. The fact that we're living and breathing and here this morning is just but by your grace and but by your mercy. And Lord, we know that you have been gracious to all of us in ways that we can see, in ways that we have not even noticed. Lord, we know that you've been gracious to this nation. Uh, You've bestowed so many blessings upon us. And Lord, we pray that, uh, Lord, those that uh, are still in darkness, I think of colleagues that I've worked with over the years I haven't talked to in 20 years sometimes but I still pray for them by name and people that that, that we've all come in contact with family members that uh, resist you or just not interested and uh, Lord people that are in addictions and trapped in things that they can't even get out of and Lord we know that you are desiring to set them free as we'll see even today in Acts 5 Lord you came to set everyone free from whatever sin or whatever things that are controlling them. Lord, we pray that uh, our nation, uh, from the highest levels to people with no power, from people with great wealth, to people that are poor, maybe even homeless, Lord, we pray that you would uh, do a work of repentance and opening eyes and saving of souls across this country. We pray that it would be a turning back to you, even in the church, Lord, not just uh, in the world, but that that, uh, the pulpits and the pews of this country, Lord, would, would see a work of refreshing and repentance and Lord turning back to you and letting go of things that we're holding on to. We pray that instead of running from you as a country we would run to you. We'd humble ourselves. Lord just as we're on our knees in a posture of humility that our nation would humble itself before you. We know that in the coming year it's not elected officials that can change. It's only the power of God. And Lord we pray for uh, this country. We pray for the nation of Austria. We pray that there would be many people come to know Jesus and that nation. We pray for the people in Morocco that are hurting this morning, even still those that are still recovering in Turkey and Syria. Lord, we pray that uh, we know that you love everyone in the Islamic world and you died for them. And we pray that they would come to know you. You do Ananias House and others. And lastly, Lord, we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, Lord, that you would deliver them, that you would come to their aid and their rescue. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for praying with us. Now that I have this back, 
I'm in good shape, guys. Uh, and in the middle of that, Sean came and changed my batteries. So I don't know what's going on, but uh, we did a whole reset up here, um, starting with my brain. But uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. I just got so into the worship, did not know my clicker was in my pocket. So a week ago, when we finished, uh, when we uh, launched into Acts chapter 5, uh, you'll recall that I had not been in the book of Acts through the month of August because I had been out for three weeks, and I read the last uh, section of verses from verse 32 through uh, verse 37 of chapter 4 uh, because that helped understand the co- helped us uh, understand and see the context of what was about to take place in chapter 5 with the introduction of Ananias and Sapphira. And so today, to, just to bridge the gap like we did last week, but not near as many verses, we just want to read the final verse from last Sunday and then read into the verses that come next. Because the last verse we read a week ago is directly related to what's about to take place in verse 12. So pick it up with me if your Bibles are open. And I'm still 12 days later, I have this chest cold thing, whatever it is. So uh, hopefully... Uh, Not a distraction to you, but uh, starting in verse 11. So we read verse 11 last week. We'll read verse 11 again. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from around the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed." Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught, but the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you that we have your word this morning, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, which is better than even our necessary food, your word tells us. And Lord, we pray that as we open it, that Holy Spirit, you would divide it. I pray that your Uh, Spirit would be speaking to each heart, those that are watching online, those that are here, that our ears would be open, that our hearts would be soft. I pray, Lord, for your anointing to to teach your word exactly how you want it to be stated this morning. We pray, Lord, that we would not only be hearers, but doers of your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the sudden death, if you go back to last week, early part of chapter 5, the sudden death of Ananias and Sapphira... God taking their lives because of pride, because of deceit that they had allowed to fill their hearts, had been a shock 
to the entire church there in Jerusalem. I think it would be a big shock if God took two people out here in the service because of sin in the camp. I would be shocked. It would be a first that I would never want to see again. But the severity in which God dealt with sin, a great fear of the Lord came upon the church. And it wasn't that the church became afraid of God, but there was a heightened respect for God, a heightened awe of God, and for the holiness of God, and even the authority of God. And it did a purifying work in the church, in a church that was already, I think you would agree with me, that was a church that was already walking in the Spirit. They were already living in grace and loving one another, and they were showing love for one another. But the prideful plan of Ananias and Sapphira, which any of us are capable of, would we agree with that? Yes. Yeah, we're all capable of any deceit. Yeah, not me. Yes, even you. <laughs> had threatened to bring secret sin into the church, but God had exposed it and removed it before it could actually spread. As I mentioned last week, I believe he took these two believers home. He took them home early, but they squandered years that they could have had living, their families, and ministering to other people. Instead, the end of their lives became an example for us of what not to do. How many of you have ever learned what not to do from somebody else? I have. It's a really good, I'd rather learn it from somebody else than learn it myself. How about you? And if you have kids, you've probably said, now this is a prime example of what not to do. What do they do? They go do it. And I need to learn it for myself. But this was a great example, not to do it. But in the aftermath of God taking their lives, there was this deeper sense of God's holiness. There was this magnified fear and awe of God, reverence of God, And what that always does, it resulted in a purifying work in the apostles, both of them recognizing the worthiness of God and also helping them draw nearer to God. And the nearer we are to the fire of God, the more it burns away and purifies the things in us and his power is then released in our life. If you're taking notes, you see the title this morning. Purity produces power. When the world seeks to build power, everybody seeks to build power. Governments, your football team, businesses, companies. But when the world seeks to build power to accomplish things, to create something, or maybe to sustain something, it's always based on getting the right people in the room. Great planning, great organization, having resources. I told the first service, you know, resources don't guarantee anything. You know, our government is really good at, for every dollar they bring in, they spend a dollar thirty. I don't know if you realize that's not good math, is it? <laughs> we bring in a dollar, we spend a dollar thirty. Resources don't solve problems. You have all the resources in the world. But anyway, resources, smart ideas, effort, 
drive, hard work, all of these things. When the world seeks to do something, it, that's the kind of stuff they galvanize. But when God pours out power or creates or sustains something, it has nothing to do with our abilities. Amen? Amen. Nothing to do with our resources. Nothing to do with our intellect. Nothing to do with our strength or even our effort. It's actually dependence on him, which comes by believing in him, obeying him, yielding to him, trusting in him, and as we saw in verse 11, to fear him. And it's not afraid of him, but to worship him. All reverence. Which then causes us, if you have a fear of the Lord, it causes us to examine our lives and anything that would hinder the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And, and you invariably will find something that will hinder you. God has, and he does, take people that have little or nothing and are even thought of as little or nothing, if you read the history of the Bible, and does the impossible through them. You know, Abraham could not have a child at 100, yet he does. Actually, Sarah does the having part, but you know what I mean, <laughs> right? David wasn't supposed to take out Goliath, but he does. Think of how Caiaphas, the high priest, Caiaphas and the religious leaders, how they thought about the apostles, and other believers for that matter. They thought of them as untrained, uneducated, unsophisticated people that had followed a poor carpenter's son from Galilee and were being duped by something that was not real. Kind of the way a Harvard professor would look at me, you know? Not all of them, but a lot of them. Yet they couldn't deny that the impossible was happening and that through this ragtag bunch of believers... God was doing these amazing things. You see, the world never really does the impossible. Ever. When we went to the moon, that's not impossible. They might do it, they might do things that have never been done before. They might do the difficult, they might do the impressive. They might do the history repeats itself. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. Would you agree with that, right? They might do the wow, I didn't know that was I didn't even know that was possible. So the, the, the pyramids in, Israel, in Egypt, they're still there today. They're not impossible, we know, because someone actually built them. We still don't know exactly how they did it, but we know it's not impossible. They would look at today and say, How did y'all figure out the internet? Well, we didn't, but somebody did, right? We all just enjoy it. Or now are slaves to it, but that's a different problem. <laughs> But the world, those outside of Christ, uh, they can never do the actual impossible. They can do amazing things, but not impossible. Only Jesus, and by the work of his Holy Spirit, does the humanly impossible. Every new salvation, for example. You can't save another person, you can't even save yourself. That's an impossible work that only God does, the work of regeneration, taking someone who's dead in their trespass sin and into new life. Now, people in the world don't think that's amazing because they don't understand it. But once you understand it, you realize what an impossible work God's done. And, in, and God's doing this again and again. Today, on September the 10th, 2023, around the world, God will save thousands of souls all over the world. Isn't that great to know? He'll do the impossible today. As Jesus said in Luke um, 
1827. He said, the things, it's up on the screen, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Anything that's impossible with man, Jesus said, I can do it. And Jeremiah 30, uh, 227, he says, Behold, I am the Lord God of all flesh. Those that worship him, those that don't. But all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? That's a rhetorical question. God is not asking if there really is. He's saying, there's not. Nothing's hard for him. When you hold the entire universe in your hand, nothing's hard. See, God creates something, everything you see, the chair you're sitting on, the clothes you're wearing, all came from elements that God created. We just fabricated something from what he had already made. Everything we can see, he created from nothing. You've heard the old uh, story, I, I can't remember where it originated, but you know, the guy says, uh, you know, I, don't, I, I, I don't believe that uh, God created everything, I believe that Everything you see, we created and said, you know, I, you, you can, uh, I, I can create something from nothing. And the guy says, all right, go ahead, give it a try. He says, just give me some dirt. And guys, the guy says back to him, you've got to create your own dirt. Amen. When God says everything starts from nothing, it's from nothing. It's not like you get a little bit of element and you can do something. That's what we do. That's what we do with timber. That's what we do with steel. That's what we do with gold. That's what we do with electricity. It's what we do with everything, magnetic fields, whatever it may be. We take what God's designed and we do something with it. But God created everything that we can see from nothing. It's impossible for any person. It's impossible for any angel. It's impossible for a fallen angel to create something from nothing. Christ alone does that. And Christ alone is risen from the dead. And Christ alone is the only one that rose from the dead of his own power and authority. Is the only one that raises souls from death to life. That's impossible for everybody but Jesus. Now understand that the angels and even the fallen angels of one, Satan is a fallen angel, just so you're aware theologically how that works. He didn't originally, he wasn't created as a fallen angel. He became a fallen angel. But they... All angels, those that are still with God in heaven, which is two-thirds the angels, a third fell away with Satan. They do have powers that far exceed that of human beings. That's why people are fascinated by superpowers. That's why they, they don't know that. They don't know that's why they're fascinated by superhero movies. They're fascinated by everything superpower because it really does exist in the spirit realm. It does. These powers were given to Angels and even fallen angels by God. And by our limited standard, we would say, I think we would all agree that angels have abilities that are supernatural compared to us. Would you agree with that? Yes. I have never flown on my own. I have to take United or Southwest and guaranteed I will lose something or there's going to be a delay or something like that. But any power that the, even the angelic realm has is a speck compared to the Spirit of God. So the demonic realm, which is the fallen angels, uh, they can and have performed supernatural signs. It's even in, I can show you places in scripture, that I believe are grand illusions. Right. Lately, uh, we've seen Congress talking about UFOs, major publications, New York Times, Washington Post, talking about UFOs. 
People are, some people are fascinated with them. Some people think it's ridiculous. Some people think it's real. Some people don't. In my view, it's a demonic illusion. Demons can take shapes and forms. It's setting the stage for greater illusions to come, greater deception to come. And understand that the demonic realm has exhibited some powers even among false religions because false religions somehow convince people by illusions and false signs. Remember back in Exodus chapter 7, Pharaoh had sorcerers and magicians and they were able, because when Aaron threw his rod down, it turned into a serpent. So then Pharaoh said, I think my guys can do that. And they threw their rods down, and they turned into serpents. I got to thinking about this this week. Uh, because of, now, this could have been total sleight of hand, or it literally could have been the power of demons. And here's how uh, it could work, potentially. Um, uh, demons don't uh, have the limitations that we have, they can zip around very quickly. Satan is principal of the air. He, he, can't be at any, he can't be everywhere at once like God, but he can get from Vegas to New York lightning fast. So it's very possible like they could potentially, uh, they throw their rods down, and demons could, in fractions of a second, grab the sticks and throw snakes right back down and it would be invisible to your eye because they move at a speed. I'm just saying that there's many reasons. Or it could be just total magic stuff. You've seen people like Houdini in the day or David Blaine today or things like that that just, that just amaze people, and it's all sleight of hand. But, but demons do have power, and they have done if, if they wanted to levitate a person, demons could lift somebody up. All, the, all these things... Uh, There really is. I mean, the witch doctors in parts of the world, they really have seen some crazy things happen because there really is a demonic realm and there really is uh, an illusion. But remember how the story in Exodus 7 ends. Uh, The little snakes are running around and and all of a sudden Aaron's rod eats all their snakes and then everything's done. Show's over. God says, all right, there's no more of this. His snake uh, ate all the snakes. Then Then Aaron's rod comes back to a rod and stands there and is like, any questions? <laughs> so it was like God was saying, look, you have some limited power, but I trump all your power. And also notice that um, nobody's ever helped by the supernatural things that Satan does. You, you, no one's healed by these things. Mm-hmm. Like the snakes run around, nobody got healed. Nobody was raised from the dead. Nobody lost a disease or anything. It was just stuff that impresses. Do you see the difference? Whereas when Jesus comes along, he does things that change people's lives. You levitating for a second does nothing other than have you follow something that's false. But in the Old Testament, in the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, God, sometimes through the prophets of the Old Testament, because they did miracles, whether it was Elijah, Elisha, Moses, and then in the New Testament with the apostles, and sometimes not even the, not only the apostles, some like Philip the Evangelist, for example, which we'll see later in Acts. They come along and they heal the sick. They restore the paralyzed. They revive the lame. Even raise the dead. Jesus raised several people from the dead, finishing with Lazarus, and finally he raised himself up. Many are set free in the New Testament specifically from demons 
that deceive and enslave people's minds. See, many people in this country, their biggest problem is not with their bodies, they're with their minds. Say that. People, Say that. We have people, we, we, we've never seen a time when so many people are suffering from anxiety, depression, and everything else. And many of us have felt these same things. We're not immune to these things. I'm not saying that. But when you look at what the Holy Spirit did through the hands and the ministry of the apostles here in verses 12 through 16, it's amazing. It's stunning. It's marvelous. It was freeing. It was life-changing for multitudes of hurting people. And all of what took place was a restart, if you will, of the flow of the Holy Spirit that began back in chapter 2, where this power is reignited, the power of the Holy Spirit is reignited in the early church there in Jerusalem with this fear of the Lord being the impetus of us, the fear of the Lord that fell upon the church and God's judgment, and that judgment that fell so quickly, so severely on Ananias and Sapphira, it was like an earthquake in the church of like, whoa. We knew God was holy. Now we realize he's even holy. He's like Mount Sinai holy, even though they knew that. It's one thing to know it and then to know it, right? Right? The early church was genuinely surrendered to Jesus. And, and, and this further, what took place with Ananias and Sapphira, uh, back to verse 11, so the fear came upon the whole church. It further purified their motives and their commitment to Christ after such a painful lesson to the entire body. I told the first service, A30 service, you can, you can already have a deep appreciation for God or all of God and respect for God, and yet you would admit it could be more than you currently have. Right. Amen to that? Right. I say it this way. I've been married for 29 years. Next year will be our 30th anniversary. I can say I love my wife as much as I possibly know I can, and God would tell me, and you can actually love her more than you currently do. Because there's always a level of depth, and that's what God did with the early church. Yes, they already had a fear of the Lord, but the fear of the Lord grew in them. The American church, um, by and large today, um, has a severe lack of the fear of the Lord. A severe lack of an awe of God. And an equally, there's a lack in the American church today of being surrendered to the lordship of Christ in our lives. Consequently, we lack the fruit of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. There are programs, but not power. There's comfort-seeking, but not compassion. There's busyness, but not boldness. There's gluttony, and I'm not just talking about food, but especially with me time, but not generosity. And sadly, there's far too much ambivalence among people, but even animosity instead of affection towards one another. But we need surrendered disciples that have a fear and a love for the Lord that comes through repentance. That's why we pray for that. I mentioned uh, the book uh, Revival Times Refreshing by Selwyn Hughes. This is what he had to say that I want to put up on the screen when men and women are challenged not, uh, when, men, when, when men and women are not challenged to repent as they come into the Christian life, then they enter it with their ego still intact and dominant. Is it any wonder that we have so many Christians in the church today who are argumentative, self-centered, 
and rebellious. They never really surrendered their will when they entered the Christian life. And, any, and when any issue comes up between their will and God's will, they, never having learned the way of obedience and repentance, take a self-centered stance. One that is usually in opposition to the Almighty. A church which does not recognize the importance of repentance is a church that is rapidly declining. And we're not just talking about numerically, even more importantly, declining spiritually. The temperature is dropping. We desperately need a continual work of humility and repentance in, in us personally, but in us collectively, not just in this church, but the church here and around the world. The church in Jerusalem, it was not in opposition to God, but it was in humble adoration of God. It wasn't an opposition. I mean, you're, you're in opposition if God is telling you, hey, I want you to just open your Bible daily and pray. You say, I don't have time for that. One day you'll meet God and he'll say, we're going to go over your calendar while you lived. And you're going to be shocked at all the time you had. Well, you won't be shocked, actually, right? Because I'm telling you right now, you won't be shocked because you already know you have the time. It's what we do with the time. And instead of self-centeredness and spiritual decay and decline, the early church saw the power of God, which I want to see. How about you? They saw the power of God released in them and in the lives around them and in the souls around them because God always, always, from Genesis to Revelation, he always uses humble, purified vessels. Humble, purified vessels. Look back at verses 12 through 16. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. What, what that means is anyone that had not come to faith, that was afraid to come to faith of what it would cost them, maybe their boss would make fun of them, maybe their families wouldn't invite them over, maybe it would cost them their job, that they had a really good relationship with Caiaphas, and Caiaphas would now give them the cold shoulder. Maybe he would kick them out of the temple altogether, which, remember, there were people that were afraid of that uh, when Jesus healed in the ministry of his life. But yet they had a high respect for because the, they couldn't deny what God was doing. They highly esteemed the people, and they knew they were friendly and helpful and generous and the power of God. So they couldn't deny it, but they, not everybody joined, but some did. Because we get to verse 14, and many and believers were increasingly added, Lord, even people that used to not want to. That was me. Up until the age of 25, I rejected God hundreds of times. And finally, I came to my senses, and I could be someone say, hey, I got lots of chances. You're still getting a lot of chances. God's grace is great, right? Multitudes of both men and women said that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities in Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Can you imagine seeing the hand of God move in this kind of way? This is one of the unique periods in all of church history that God moved in this way, and he did it several times 
in the early church. This isn't the only time. But all throughout the book of Acts, when we see these things, they're uh, kind of mind-blowing to us. Seeing souls coming to Christ for salvation daily. Just people are getting saved every day. Every day. Not just on the Sabbath day, not just on a Sunday like we meet here or on a Wednesday night, but every day people were coming to Christ. People were then the believers were inviting their sick neighbors, say, hey, we'll, we'll carry you out to the street, and when one of the apostles' shadow passes you, you'll even be healed. They don't even have to touch you. Remember when the woman wanted to touch the hem of the garment of Jesus? She knew if she touched it, this was an act of faith, that they would say, I, we believe that God can heal us, and there was this unique time where God was healing in such a way. And uh, Now Luke, remember Luke was a physician. Luke wrote the book of Luke. Luke wrote the book of Acts. Because Luke was a physician, as I've said numerous times, Luke wrote about Jesus' healings more than Matthew, Mark, and John. Because he was a physician, he was, his mind was blown how easily God healed people from certain death sentence sicknesses. I mean, limbs, paralysis, cancers, leprosy, that God would heal instantaneously. It just, Luke had probably, as a physician, like many of your doctors have worked with you for years, and you manage symptoms, but they haven't been healed. God has this kind of healing power, and there in the early church, he poured it out, and people were bringing their... Uh, can you imagine just, if, I could, if, if we could see this in our lifetime, the apostles are long gone, they're in heaven right now, so we're not going to see the apostolic work, but if you could transfer it to our time, can you imagine convincing St. Mary, if you would just line them up on the street, I'm telling you, when Peter walks by, you won't need to... Start, you, you're you're going to be out of business. Well, they wouldn't like that either, but that's a different story. Amazing. Many more were tormented by demonic spirits. They were set free. A lot of people were demonically possessed. And by the way, when you see some of the nutty things you watch on the news, some of the people you, you see, you thought, wow, I, I, is that a mental issue? No, a lot of times it's demonic possession. I mean, people are flat out controlled today just like they were then. It's not, all, it's not always that. I mean, there's all kinds of other things involved. But the church... The disciples within the body, not just the apostles, the, the church there in Jerusalem, the flock as a whole at that time was in such a place of purity, such a place of prayer, such a place of devotion uh, to Christ and fear of the Lord, such a place of love and generosity for one another, compassion for one another, a passion for God's word, a faith in the gospel, and a heart for lost souls. The church had all of that going on, and that purity that the early church had there, and understand, purity in this lifetime is not perfection, but it's the intent and the actions of her heart. Like, I can say, me and Sarah have a pure marriage, but I did not say we have a perfect marriage. You can have a pure walk with the Lord, but that doesn't mean this side of heaven, not a perfect walk, but it still can be a pure, it's purified by the Lord. But it's not perfect, not until we get to heaven. But the purity of their walk resulted in the Spirit pouring out power. Unprecedented power. Unprecedented prospering. Not prospering like you see the televangelists talk about, everyone becoming a millionaire. Not that kind of prospering. But prospering in the ways that bring glory to God and a harvest into heaven. You will not take your 401k to heaven, but you could take your grandkids if they come to know Jesus. Amen? Amen. 
That's the harvest we're talking about. That's what was taking place. Their neighbors were set free from sin, in some cases demonic possession, or healed, and they gained heaven. But they might have, while they gained heaven, they gained an enemy in Caiaphas. That's not a trade some people are willing to take in this lifetime. Some people say, I am not giving up my good career to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, well, your life's but a vapor. You need to understand you're choosing the lower instead of the greater. Now, of course, in the sovereignty of God, he spurred this purity. He, if you and I have a purity in our life, it's not that we manufacture it. God spurred it in us, amen? Because we're not even pure enough to start a work of purity. But God spurred, he spurred this astounding purity and the work in the early church. First, it started with Pentecost. They had a prayer meeting, but he poured out the purity and the power. And, and even his decisive judgment on sin and pride spurred a purity. We saw that. The fear of the Lord caused yet another wave of this work of God. But the people still had to respond. And the people did respond. They still they yielded their lives and they yielded their will to the spurring of God. And if God is spurring things in your life, are you responding to it or are you resisting it? And the Spirit then multiplied the refreshing. Now we know that people, all of us included, all of you online included, people do not always, I can get a big amen on this, people do not always yield to the grace of God. Amen? That's including us. And times we have a lot of grace and we don't yield to the grace, we take it for granted. Instead of yielding to it, we take it for granted. We even don't always yield to the judgment of God. So that's just, that's just mean. Or to the prompting of God. Sometimes it's just a prompting. We don't, we don't always yield to that. As I mentioned, tomorrow's 9-11. It's the 22nd anniversary of 9-11. Uh, 22 years since I... The loudest wake-up call in this country in my lifetime. I'm 54 years old. It was the loudest wake-up call. Uh, it's had a profound impact on me. More than, I guess, some people, but I, I'm thankful to God it had a profound impact and pushed me even more to be in the ministry sooner it wasn't the only thing, but it was a big thing. But it was the loudest wake-up call in my lifetime. And not only has the nation refused that wake-up call, but in large part, the church refused that wake-up call. Many believers are no more interested in being all surrendered to Jesus than they were 20 years ago. The pandemic was the second massive wake-up call. If you get, you ever, you ever uh, say, um, I'm going to set my alarm, and you get to hit snooze, you get a second buzz from the alarm. If you stay at a hotel in the old days, you would set your alarm, and you would ask for a wake-up call. Right, right, right. It's called getting two calls for the same reason. 9-11, uh -huh. pandemic, America says, hang up the first call and hang up the second call. Yeah. We've hung up both calls. So the church today is lukewarm at best. The early church in Jerusalem, they prioritized their lives drastically different than the church today. I'm not saying everyone in the church. We've got brothers and sisters in places like North Korea that are almost a mirror image of the surrender. But for the most part, drastically different than the church today. The apostles, they did not have to plead with people 
to serve. They didn't have to plead with people to come and pray. We had a prayer night this past Wednesday. It was a beautiful time. But I, I look forward. No, I know that some people can't come. You're traveling. You got, you're nursing that night. All those things. Whatever it may be. But uh, on the other hand, they prioritize their life to make room, more room for the work of the Spirit. Yes, the apostles, they did plead with the lost though. They, they didn't have to plead with the church because the church was listening to the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit's moving, uh, the apostles don't have to twist arms. Hey, please, please serve in children's ministry. Uh, we will help you. We'll pay you. Uh, whatever it takes. You know, uh, They didn't have to do that. But they did plead with the lost, even to the point of pulling them out on their beds to the side of the road, whatever it took, because they were walking in purity and walking in power. And Satan hates that. Look back at your Bibles, uh, verse 17. Satan hates when the church is walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Then the high priest rose up, and all those are with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. It's like veins popping out, you know? Uh, And laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. Why? Because they were healing people. People were being set free. Demons were being cast out. And they didn't like that at all. They wanted people in bondage. Uh, But at night, the angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Satan only has two main cards to work with. One, and by the way, he's done a lot of damage with both cards. So he has two cards he can work with. And he does, he's done a lot of damage with both of them. Uh, one is to infiltrate the church with sin. Doesn't matter what kind of sin. Lukewarm, pride, fire type stuff, immorality, whatever it is. Materialism, worship of self, whatever. But one is the poison of sin. And the other one is persecution. Pressure on the church. So it's either the poison of sin, which is an inside job, or persecution, which is an outside opposition. So given that the Holy Spirit has already thwarted the inside poison, remember, and as Sapphira might have brought sin in, but God dealt with it immediately and purified it before it ever even spread. He protected what we talked about last week, the root of the church. Satan reverts to his other card, which is persecution. Pressure. So given that the Holy Spirit did what he did, Satan goes back to the attack, intimidation. And then we see how Caiaphas reacts to seeing thousands coming to Christ, thousands healed, demons cast out of people. I mean, the people are rejoicing in Caiaphas, and all he can think of is, stop this now. By the way, if you think people that don't know the Lord really care about the people at the bottom, think again. I'm telling you they don't. Unless they get saved, they don't really, it's all talk. But the high priest was a pawn of Satan. He didn't, he didn't even know he was a pawn of Satan necessarily, but he was a pawn of Satan. And by the way, we have plenty of people in leadership in the United States that are pawns of Satan. They don't know they are. They just are. Yeah. And Caiaphas just can't take it anymore. He cannot take seeing the people rejoicing and praising God and believing that Jesus is the only way to heaven. 
seen people healed, set free, thousands did not, none of that phased him. He, He wasn't saying, this is great. You mean you were healed? He was worried about losing power. His own power. The power of God is being poured out and he's worried about losing power. As best we can tell, they round up all the apostles, not just Peter and John this time, all 12. Mm-hmm. And throw all 12 in to prison. And they think to themselves, that should stop it. <laughs> now, you've got to be really, really dumb. And really ignoring the power of God. You've seen people healed and you don't think God can still overcome the jail cell? I mean, he's just set people free from cancers and diseases and leprosy and all these things and lame and cast out demons and they think, got them in jail. We've solved this problem. But the power was still on, wasn't it? The power was still on. The power continued. It wasn't turned off, not by a long shot. The God that heals in the daytime delivers in the darkness. And matter of fact, if you're in a dark period, often, more often, God delivers in the darkness than he does in the daylight. Amen? Amen. Most often comes at midnight. Delivers in the darkness. The God that opens eyes and hearts can just as easily open doors. Maybe you need a door opened in your life. God can open the door. We were just doing some counseling, me and my wife or someone, and we, they were telling us something God did. We knew God had opened a door. I remember having a conversation with that same person a year earlier. I said, trust God, he can do this, and he's done it. Amen. And it's at night that God often moves, and it's at night that God sends this angel. Even Jesus is going to return for his church in the night, in the dark of this world. And the Lord opens the locked doors. There's no locked door that God can't open. There's no locked heart that God can't open. No locked door that he can't open. And the angel tells the apostles to go, stand the temple, and speak. By the way, passages like this, uh, I've told you all before that if I had my druthers, I wouldn't do public speaking the rest of my life. I've done it a long time. I'd be just fine to not talk to anybody for a long, long time. And God's like, you're going to do this till the day you die. Because this is important to me. Doesn't, and if it's important to God, it's important to me. I'm just simply saying that just like many of I mean, if you were honest with yourself, you would say, I'm not changing another diaper when your kid was two months old. That lasted 10 seconds. And you're like, I gotta go, you got to go do it anyway, right? It has nothing to do with what you feel like doing. Amen. But to go and stand and speak, these passages, still, they still speak to me. God said, just go, stand, and speak. Go, stand, and speak. Just share the word of God. You don't have to come up with anything. Just take what I've said and re-give it out. That's what he was telling the apostles. Go back to the temple. But it worked out miserably. He throws on jail. Don't worry about it. Go right back there. Repreach the same message. And lo and behold, what's really cool about this is someone that the day before wouldn't receive probably would the next day. Amen. People you're going to see at Thanksgiving this year, this could be the year. Amen. Uh, I've been doing this for 10 years. Don't worry. Just be a light again, all over again. Just go there, stand, say a few things that, that are kind and, and show the love of Jesus. 
to anyone who will listen. As they went back there to the people, all the words of this life. What's the message? This life. What is the life? It's called the forgiven life. And the eternal life found only in Jesus. No change whatsoever to the previous message. Don't have to change the message. Uh, you have not changed the voltage in your house in all the years you've had it because it's the same power, the same voltage. All you do is you actually put new light bulbs in, but you don't, you're not changing the power and you don't change the message. There's no power in any other message. So they go back there. God says, just like you did the healing, I'll open the prison doors. You, I'll take care of the poison. I'll take care of the persecution. You just preach the same message. The words of this life. How about us as we come to a close? Uh, bring it back to the beginning. Is there a growing purity in our walk that's due to surrender? Let's say, Lord, I'm not going to try and hold on to things that you don't want me to hold on. But surrendering those things. Lord, I don't know why I'm trying to hold on to this. It doesn't really even make me happy per se anyway. And seeing that, are we seeing a spirit-given power in our lives that's causing us? And the spirit's the one that helps us pour out our life. I would not be able to pour out my life, and I'm not even that good at it, unless I have the Holy Spirit help me. How about you? Amen. I'm not even, Lord, I can't even pour out a little bit of it unless you help me pour out a little bit of it. And then the power to stay faithful. You don't have the power to stay faithful. You have to receive the power to stay faithful. And then, not only against the poisons of temptations that are out there, but also the opposition. You might not be thrown into jail, but you will have pressures in this life that Satan will use to have you throw in the towel and say, God doesn't hear my prayers. Right? Opposition, persecution, pressures, poison, all of it. Satan, he only has those two cards to work with, and you have, we're not ignorant of his devices, the scriptures tell us. So, so Lord, we say, we know these things, the early church, what was the recipe? They, they had the fear of the Lord. And they had a gratitude towards the Lord. And that produces a purity, which then produces the power. Amen? Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again that your word is forever faithful. And Lord, uh, it can be not only trusted, but we can anchor our life to it. Jesus, you say you're, of yourself you're the chief cornerstone, but you're also the Word. And so, Lord, we build our lives on what you have said in your Word because we know that you and you alone are faithful and true. And, Lord, we ask that you would do a purifying work in each and every one of us. Before we close in prayer, just, just keep your heads bowed for just one moment. I did want to share uh, this past, I, I mentioned... No one could have seen 9-11 coming. I didn't see it coming even when I said what I said the night of the 10th. I, 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 what happened was far of a greater magnitude than even my I conceived. But I told the first service, I thought, nobody that got on the planes on 9-11, had they known they would go into the Pentagon or into the fields of Shanksville, Pennsylvania, or into the Twin Towers, if they had known that would happen, guess what? They would not have got on the plane. If I knew that was going to happen, I wouldn't have got on the plane. But nobody knew. Only God knew. The other night, on Wednesday night, um, we had just finished our prayer meeting. 
and we were outside uh, in the parking lot fellowshipping and just talking and kind of having final goodbyes. And and while I was stand, I was up there talking to Joe Reap, uh, standing on the uh, walkway, and other people were out there milling around, and, and I saw this silver Corvette go flying by on Genito. And I'd never seen, since we've been here since 2015, I'd never seen a car go by that fast. I couldn't guesstimate, but I was thinking that had to be a neighborhood of 90 miles an hour, maybe plus. Could have been up to 100. I'd never seen a car go by that fast. Within a fraction of a second, I hear, <laughs> if you go out the front doors here, you look to the left, you'll see the tree that's knocked over. The car went, the Corvette went, nearly hit one of our ladies at the church who was turning out, missed her by like a fraction, which we didn't even know that until after. It happened all in a, like, you're talking hundreds of a second. It was moving so fast, she didn't even see the car come, and his lights were off. This is her car, hits, goes through a fence, through a second fence, and when you see the the, the final uh, pictures that were in the newspaper and everything, and there's one of fence posts is through his windshield, but misses his head by like this much. You would think, even the, the way the car, you would think nobody survived this, and yet this 19, this kid is alive. And we've been praying for him. And, and, and our sister here that nearly was hit, she would not be with us. She got back from a mission trip to Guatemala with our team and would not survive that and went almost. But God, it wasn't her time and it wasn't his time yes. because God's the one that determines. It is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. You will not miss your appointment. You can accelerate it like Ananias and Sapphira, but you won't miss it. But you know that you want to be ready for it and be in Jesus. Amen? Amen. So with our heads bowed for just one moment, if there's even one person here say, you know, I know this message was mostly to people in the church because this was a message to the church, about the church, although people were being saved that weren't in the church. But if you're here this morning and say, I, I've never asked God to come into my life and save me. I've never put my faith and trust in Jesus. I know his name. I know who he is, but I've never asked him to be my Lord and Savior. And you want to do that here this morning. I couldn't convince you to do it, but the Holy Spirit can and I'm asking you, don't put it off if you want to come to Christ. Just raise your hand. I want to pray with you. I can't, I can't say, but I can lead you to Jesus who can. If there's even one person, just raise your hand. I want to pray with you. Don't, don't worry about other people think. Don't worry about any of that stuff. It's your soul. It's your eternity. God wants to save every single person. Even there's one. Just raise your hand. I want to pray with you. If there's even one, I don't want to assume you're already to meet God face, because everyone's going to meet the Lord. If you want to talk afterwards, we're, we're available. We'll have some folks up here in the corner. For all of us, as we close in worship, I would ask you this. Search yourself, even today and this week. Lord, is there a purity in me? Do I really have a fear of the Lord and awe of the Lord? Is there really a surrender in my life? And if there's not, show me the things that are actually holding up me being fully yielded and filled with the Spirit of God. Not only for your own joy and peace and the power of God flowing in your life, but the, that you would be used as an instrument. Peter's shadow was being used. And that, that, that tells you something, that you can be used even when you're not even knowing you're being used, if you're fully yielded. Amen? Let's stand as we close in worship.